and uh, appreciate you all so much. And uh, I got to tell you, we are going to, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to tackle what I believe is probably the most difficult section of the book of Revelation. And I say that with all humility and uh, dependence on God. And uh, so I ask you specifically, if you will pray, pray. I know you pray for me anyway, but just really pray for me that I can be clear on these. I don't want to jump to any conclusions. We just want to let the Bible just speak for itself. And, uh, and I think God will give us clarity if we'll do that. But we're going to be in Revelation 17. <clears throat> now, this is one of five, actually the last one, of what Dr. Andy Woods calls non-chronological parenthetical insertions, or NCPI. I like that better. Dr. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse called them lunch breaks. Maybe you like that even better. He's, he, he, uh, he likened it to someone going on a, uh, a hiking trip or something, and you want to pick the most scenic place to, to just sit down and have a, a picnic lunch or whatever. So Barnhouse called these lunch breaks, but you've got five of them. Uh, chapter 7 is the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Uh, the second one is Revelation 10, the announcement of no more delay and the two witnesses. And then you have uh, Revelation 12 through 14, which is Israel's flight and the beast, and uh, scenes of hope. Then a short one in Revelation 16, which is the gathering of the nations to Armageddon. And then Revelation 17 through 19, verse 6. Please understand that what we're studying today is part of a section that goes all the way to 19, verse 6. Is that clear as mud? Okay, so you understand you've got to treat this whole thing as a unit. You can't just chop it up. That's what a lot of commentaries do. They just chop it up. So this is our, uh, our, our five NCPIs. Now, uh, when we get to chapter 17 today, we're going to look at uh, the great harlot. Now, we've been in introduced to four women in the book of Revelation. Uh, well, there's a fourth one to come. First one is Jezebel. She's a, she's a product of this system, I believe. Then we have Israel in chapter 12. We're going to look at the great harlot today in chapter 17. And then we're going to look at the, the Lamb's wife uh, in, in the subsequent studies. So, uh, having said that, um, let's just go right into 17. Would you stand with me? We'll stretch, give you a chance to get the blood circulating. We're only going to go to verse 6. Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her name, a forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. 
This is the word of the Lord. Preacher Larry, would you? So in verse 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels spoke with, uh, with John. Now, the seven angels had the seven bowls. So what we're going to study today is in connection with the seven bowl judgments that we just saw. Now, what happened in the last of the seventh bowls? Remember, there was a great earthquake, and there was hailstones that came down that the uh, weight of a talent. And, and if you back up to 16, verse um, 18, it says, The great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And what happened? Great Babylon was remembered before God. So the wrath of God has fallen on Babylon to destroy her at this, uh, at this juncture. So one of the seven angels, we don't know which one, maybe it's the one that poured out the seventh bowl, but it's, uh, he's going to show us some extra things about the judgment of, of the harlot. Now, he says, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Look with me now at chapter 21. And verse 9. James, is your microphone hot? Yes, sir. Oh, good, yes. Yeah. Speak up, right into that thing, brother. That sounds good. <laughs> All right, would you read um, verses 9, 10, and 11? Yes, sir. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Okay, so one of the seven angels, maybe it's the same one, I don't know. But he, uh, he's going to carry John away, but this time he's not going to take him to a wilderness, but this time he carries him to a high mountain, and he shows him the, the lamb's wife. So we're, we're, I think we're supposed to see these two uh, compare and contrast. The first one is a wilderness and a harlot. This one is a bride in a high mountain. Okay, so let's go back to, uh, to chapter 17 now. And he says, I'm going to show you the judgment. Uh, so what this whole scene is dealing with the judgment of Babylon, the great harlot. Now, how do we figure out um, who the great harlot is? Well, the Bible is its own interpreter. Go to the last verse of this chapter. And James, would you read verse 18? And the woman which thou sawest, is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So there's no mystery. The woman is a city. She's, is that what your Bible says? She's a city. Okay. Now it says that she sits on many waters. Well, how are we to interpret that? The Bible's its own interpreter. Look with me in verse 15, same chapter. James, would you read that? And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, 
where the, where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. All right, so the waters are interpreted for us, aren't they? We don't have to use our sanctified imagination. The, the waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. This is a fourfold designation. We've seen it throughout the book of Revelation, and it means the world. So whatever your, your, uh, your thoughts are about Babylon, understand that her influence, if you will, is on the whole world. It's not just one location. And that's where so many commentaries get bogged down. They're, they're focused on Rome or, or some city. But this, uh, this, the scope of the harlot is worldwide. And what we're also going to discover is that her impact has been throughout all of history, not just uh, in the tribulation period. Because I think sometimes we, we come to this chapter, and I was talking with somebody else about this this week. We come to this chapter, and we think, well, who cares? I mean, if I'm saved, I'm going in the rapture, and this is not going to impact me. But what you're going to learn here is that this harlot is not just impacting people in the tribulation period. She has impacted the world throughout the history of mankind. That means today we have to know about the harlot. And we have to be uh, mindful and, uh, and on guard against her seduction. Now, she is called, in verse 1, the harlot. And the King James has another not-so-flowery word for her. And it's interesting because the word harlot is the Greek word porne, where we get our word pornography or sexual immorality from. And every other time in the King James, it's translated harlot. But when they got to Revelation, they decided to translate it another way. And so I, I, kinda, I think I know what their mindset was. They were trying to show her as the ultimate harlot. But it's the same word used for Rahab. Okay? Rahab the harlot, right? So it's, she's a harlot. Now, harlot in the Bible uh, is tantamount to apostasy or idolatry, the symbolism. All right, James, I got several scriptures up here on the board. Can you read those? Yes, sir. All right. If you'll give the, uh, the reference to for the folks that are listening on the internet. All right. <clears throat> Isaiah one twenty one. How has the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged, in, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Jeremiah 2.20 For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands and thou sayest I will not transgress when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot Jeremiah 3.8 And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. All right, so that's just three verses, but the Bible's filled of examples. God talks about harlotry uh, is, is, is synonymous with uh, idolatry, okay? It's being unfaithful. Now, this is not in my outline, but I think I want you to go here. Go with me to the book of James. James chapter 4, and we'll see a New Testament um, application of this too. James chapter 4, 
<clears throat> and James, if you'll read verses 1 through 5 there. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Yet lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and ye receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is the enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Okay, so God is jealous. God is a jealous God. The first command of the Ten Commandments is what, guys? You have no other gods before me. Okay, um, so friendship with the world is tantamount to spiritual adultery. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 now. Again, this is not in my outline, but I feel led to go, go this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want you to see the imagery that the Apostle Paul uh, has in terms of our relationship to the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 1 through 3. Would you read that, James? 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. Would to, God ye be, uh, would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Okay, so Paul says, I want to present you as a, uh, a chaste, what, virgin to Christ. We're supposed to be pure. All right, let's go back to Revelation 17 now. James, I apologize. You're going to get a workout today, but that's okay. I think you were out last week, weren't you? Yes. So, you know, Amanda came up to me recently, and she said, we, we got a horse, and you know what we named him? She said, we named him Henry. <laughs> I said, well, it's a good thing you didn't get a donkey, right? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> We're back to Revelation 17. <laughs> okay. He says, Come, I will show, we're in verse 1. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Well, Jeremiah predicted this. Remember, we can't just jump into Revelation and completely ignore the Old Testament. So, Jeremiah has given us some insight into the waters. So James, would you can you read that off of the board there? James, uh, Jeremiah fifty one, twelve and thirteen. Jeremiah fifty one twelve, set up the standard on the walls of Babylon, 
make the guard strong, set up the watchmen, prepare the ambushes, for the Lord has both devised and done what he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. Thirteen. Yeah, read verse 13. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come, the measure of your covetousness. Okay. So Babylon is the one who dwells by many waters. Is that what it says? So I think the Holy Spirit wants us to make the connection here. You can't divorce Revelation from the Old Testament. The book of Revelation assumes you've read the Old Testament. And we've been studying this long enough to where that shouldn't be a new concept for us. Okay. And also, we know that the waters represent what? Peoples, tongues, nations, and multitudes. So, um, verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of fornication. They're intoxicated. The nations are intoxicated. Uh, uh, psalm 137.1 is the newest psalm we have in the, in the psalms. How many of you know what the oldest psalm is? Anybody? Psalm 90. It's, it was written by Moses. Uh, psalm 137 is one of the, the newest psalms in the book, or it is the newest psalm. And it says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. But here, the, uh, the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated. It's the kings, that's the rulers of the government, and, and all the people are intoxicated with Babylon. She has a, a stupefying effect. She, she's mesmerizing. She's, uh, she's seductive. She has the world under her sway. Um, now, this fornication, let me back up here. The, this fornication here uh, is not just speaking literally but it's talking about spiritual adultery, spiritual uh, harlotry, if you will. Remember the theme here is prostitution. What is prostitution? It's taking something that's a legitimate thing, which is sex created by God, and using it in an illegitimate way for money. Okay, So covetousness goes part and parcel with this. Now it says in verse 3, This angel carried me away in the spirit. We've seen that several times in the book of Revelation carried away in the spirit. But remember in chapter 21, John was carried where? In the spirit, to a high mountain, right? It's to see the new Jerusalem. This time, he's carried in the spirit, and where is he, where is he going? Wilderness. Not, not anywhere you want to be, right? Now, the woman in chapter 12 is in the wilderness, but don't confuse her, because she's Israel. This is a different woman altogether. How do we understand this wilderness? Well, guess what? Isaiah the prophet tells us a little bit about that. James, you want to read that for me? It's uh, Isaiah 21, verses 1, and then verse 9. Isaiah 21, 1. The burden against the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from the terrible land. Isaiah 21, 9. And look. Here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods has broken to the ground. We've already seen this before, haven't we? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. We saw that in chapter 14, I think. The wilderness of the sea is connected to where? Babylon. 
Okay, do you see the connection there? Isaiah the prophet. And it's connected with the fall of Babylon. Do you see that? Fallen, fallen Babylon, which is the wilderness of the sea. The Bible is its own interpreter. <clears throat> he carried me in the wilderness, and he's, now we're going to look at the apparel of the woman. The woman is sitting on a scarlet beast. Well, I thought she was sitting by the water. Well, she is, but she's also riding a beast. And we've got to keep these separate. A lot of people get confused because they don't understand the woman and the beast are two separate people. The woman is sitting on the beast. Which was full of names of blasphemy. Now we saw this beast before. Let's back up and look at him. He's in chapter 13. We're still in Revelation. Revelation 13. Verses 1 and 2. Would you read that, James? And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seal excuse me, and his seat and his great authority. All right. So from Daniel, you remember, Daniel uh, saw four beasts. He saw uh, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a nondescript beast. And so this beast here is the composite of all of these. He contains elements of all those empires. He's all of the worst of the worst rolled into one. In Revelation 13, are we told the color of the beast? We're not, are we? We're just told uh, his attributes. Back up to chapter 12, verse 3, and we do see another sign. James, you want to read that? And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. All right, so the beast here has, uh, um, the dragon, excuse me, is red. So now we see that the, uh, the color of the, uh, of the uh, beast in 17 is what? Scarlet, same color. Um, in 13, he had names full of blasphemy, Names of blasphemy, but now the beast is covered with blasphemy. Totally, uh, he's not limited to the heads, in other words. He's full of uh, names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Let's talk about her, her attire, shall we? Let's look at her apparel. A woman's riding a scarlet beast... Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman, it says in verse 4, she was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand. Well, let's just talk about her apparel first of all, <clears throat> before we get to her, her accoutrement. Um, she's dressed, uh, 
she's dressed in a, in a very ostentatious way, isn't she? There's nothing humble about her. James, will you read off the board here, Jeremiah 4, verse 30. Jeremiah 4, 30. And when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your, level, your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. Okay. So this is ostentatious, um, bold, loud, uh, trying to get attention. Notice the ornaments are, are very similar to the woman in Revelation. Now let's contrast her with the, the bride, the lamb's wife, Revelation 19.8. Will you read that, James? It's on the board up there. Revelation 19.8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. All right, there's a stark contrast, isn't there? What about the New Testament church? 1 Timothy 2.9 In like manner also that the woman adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. 1 Timothy 2.10 Yeah. But which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. 1 Peter 3, three, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. 1 Peter 3.4, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So how, what a stark contrast, again, with the harlot of Revelation. God wants his people to be modest, you know, and, uh, and I won't camp out here too long, but men and women, we ought to be people of modesty. And if you're, and if you're a person who, who values that, you know that it's harder and harder to go into a store and find any clothes that are modest anymore. You know, I, I, I'm, I'll be 50 years old this year, and, uh, and I'll tell you what, to find a pair of jeans, it's hard to find a pair of jeans that are not ripped in the store. When I was growing up, you had to make your own rips in, in the jeans. But, but now you buy them that way. But um, I, I'm not going to go too far off on a rabbit trail. But ladies, you know this too. Everything is super short, super low cut. You know, and it's, and it's Babylon, folks. It's the system of the harlot. And, and we have to be, be mindful of that. We need to be different. You know? I'm not saying we have to wear burkas and, and you know, I'm, I'm not saying we have to go to some extremes or, or become legalistic, but God has called us to modesty, men and women. All right. Now, uh, back to Revelation 17. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet. By the way, purple uh, is a symbol of royalty, and uh, scarlet is a, a symbol of luxury. Remember, they put a scarlet robe on Jesus before they crucified him. Uh, the, the purple comes from the dye of a shellfish. I think it's called a murex. And the scarlet comes from a bug. I think it's called the cocoid bug. 
and it was precious, but scarlet is symbolic or, or synonymous with luxury. She's adorned with gold and precious stones. Now, she's got in her hand a golden cup. So far, so good, right? <laughs> Nothing wrong with a golden cup, right? But this cup, outwardly, is beautiful. But inwardly, is full of what? Abominations. All right. How do we interpret the golden cup? Oh, guess what? We've got some Old Testament for that. Jeremiah 51, 7. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in Revelation. A, cu a golden cup, the world is drunk in the wine of her fornication, her immorality. Okay, um, Matthew 23, 25. Will you read that, James? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Looks all great on the outside, doesn't it? Inside is where it counts, folks. You know? There's a lot of people that look the part, but God told Samuel when he was trying to pick the next king, he said, don't look at the outward appearance. That's where man looks. But you need to look on the heart. That's where God looks. God looks on the heart. And that's not to say that we don't, you know, we're not to be outwardly uh, righteous or whatever. But God looks on the heart. And that's important. Now, <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. And you know this from experience. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Sin is fun. Otherwise, we would never do it. For a season. James, would you read Hebrews 11, 25? Hebrews eleven twenty five, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The King James says for a season, enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know, that's what sin is. It's a passing pleasure. I'm going to preach here. Is that okay? I'm going to do it because I'm not just the president of the hair club for men. I'm also a client. Some of y'all remember that commercial. Sin is fun for a while. It's fun for a while or else we wouldn't do it. But the choir sang this earlier. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It's going to keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it's going to cost you more than you're willing to pay. Satan is the master at showing you the short range. That's what he always does. He shows you the short range. Okay? And it looks like so much fun. And everybody in here that has ever yielded to sin, which, by the way, is everybody in here, <laughs> you know that you, know, you envision it being so much fun. And when it's over, it's always like, man, why did I do that? I felt like garbage the last time I did that. I felt condemned the last time I did that. My conscience was killing me the last time I did it, and here I am doing it all over again. Why? Because Satan focuses on that short-term pleasure. You know? All of our movies and television shows, they glorify adultery and illicit sexual relationships. And, we're, and we're, it's just so much fun to watch these people having these affairs 
And they don't show you the, the devastation that it leaves in broken homes, lives. Alcohol commercials. You notice in the alcohol commercials, everybody's good looking in the, in the alcohol commercials, right? They're all having a good time. And the, the idea here is the more you drink, the cooler you'll be, the more hip you'll be, and the more fun you'll have. What they, they never show a guy with a big fat beer belly and a red bulbous nose and yellow eyes. They don't show that. They don't show the cops responding to a domestic violence call because the husband's had too much to drink and he's terrorizing the family. They're not going to show you that. They show you how much fun it's going to be. They don't take you to the hospital room where the guy's dying of cirrhosis of the liver, which I had a family member that died that way, and it's one of the worst ways you could die. They don't show you that. Drunk drivers. They don't show you. It's the short term, you see. Satan always shows you what's fun for a minute, and he doesn't show you the lasting Sometimes permanent consequences. Now, I'm not saying God won't forgive us of our sins, okay? But I'm saying we can live with the consequences of forgiven sin for a long time. Ask David. David was forgiven of his sin, but you know what else God said? The sword will never depart from your house. Don't make a permanent decision based on temporary pleasure. That's all I'm saying. All right. Pornography, you know. It, it, it used to be when I was a kid, that, you know, you had a friend that had uh, dirty magazines that he had stolen from his dad, you know. And, and, and it was a big deal to get, uh, to get to do that and look at those pictures. Now, all you got to do is pick up your phone or your computer. And in a moment, in a moment, that's why you need to be careful. Watch what your kids are looking at on the Internet. And it's like, it's, it's pornography. They have proven it's just like drug addiction. There's receptors in the brain. And it's the law of diminishing returns. And, it, and once a person gets hooked on it, it takes more and more and more and more. And what it does is it damages the relationship. A lot of times, I can't tell you how many marriages have been destroyed by pornography. I know because I'm a pastor who has counseled these couples. And it's usually the husband that's addicted to it, but not always. The women don't, don't so much watch pornography as much as the literature that they're reading, depicting all these graphic things that are not normal. Uh, extramarital and glorifying affairs and such. Y'all are real quiet on me today, but that's okay. I'm, I came to preach. Um, the golden cup in her hand. She's seductive. It's full of, full of the filthiness of her fornication. And it's full of, but back to Revelation, um, full of abominations. Now, abomination in the Bible is always synonymous with idolatry. That's why when Jesus speaks about the abomination of desolation, it's about an idol or an image being set up in the Holy of Holies where God alone is to be worshipped. Okay, So let's look at some examples. These are just a few from the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 29 and 32. James, will you read those? Deuteronomy 29:16. For ye know how we have dealt dwelt in the land of Egypt and how we came through the nations which ye passed by 17 and ye have seen their abominations and their idols wood and stone silver and gold which were among them Deuteronomy 32 16 
They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. All right, so abomination and idolatry go hand in hand. Let's go to Ezekiel now. Ezekiel chapter 8. I know you were probably there this morning in your devotions. So you should be able to go right to it. Ezekiel chapter 8. Now, Ezekiel prophesied during the Babylonian captivity. And this is going to show you one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons that they went into Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel 8. Uh, James, if you will, read verse 6 through 18. He said, Furthermore unto me, Son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary. But turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them seventy men of ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us, seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. And he said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at that door the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east, and they worshipped the sun towards the east. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen, O son of man? Is it a like thing to the house of Judah that they commit the, abomin the abominations which they commit here? For they, have fulfilled, for they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put, a, put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. All right, thank you. So there's abominations going on. They've, they're worshiping all kinds of creeping things, bugs, whatever. And they're, they're burning incense. They're worshiping the sun in the east. 
Where is Babylon? Babylon is always synonymous with the east. They're worshiping the sun. I want you to pay special attention to what the women were doing. The Bible says that they were weeping for Tammuz. Okay? File that away. We're going to visit here in just a moment. The women were weeping for Tammuz. And God, they thought they were doing it in secret. God said, I can take you to the hole in the wall, Ezekiel, and I'm seeing every single thing that's going on in here. And don't think for a minute that God doesn't know what we're doing. All right. Now, back to Revelation. We're coming to the end here. It says uh, she's got a name written on her forehead. These are marks of identification here. Uh, Jeremiah 3 3. James, you want to read that? Therefore, the showers have been withheld. And there has been no latter rain, yet you have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Okay. So from what I gather in ancient culture, the, the prostitutes, the harlots, would wear a band as a mark of identification. Just like if you go into any red light district now, it's not hard to figure out who the harlots are, right? They're clearly displaying their wares for all to see. And that's, that's the same here. That's why the mark is in the forehead. Now, this is a mark of identification here. Okay? She's showing you who she is. Now, God's people are sealed. I'm not going to make you read this, James. God's people are sealed with the name of God in their forehead, Revelation 14. What about the beast worshipers? He's got them marked too. Where? On their forehead. Okay? You are who you are who you are. See, she's showing you who she is. She's showing you, I'm a harlot. I'm, I, I'm for hire. I'm for sale. I told my daughter we were in the tire shop. Me and Amber were in the tire shop uh, a few, few weeks ago. And I, and I told her, I said, when people show you who they are, believe it. Because they will. And when people show you who they are, believe it. Don't, don't listen to what they say. Look at what they do. Okay. All right. Now, we come to the booger, I call it. <laughs> because so much confusion over this thing about mystery. It says, on her forehead was a name written. Now, if you got a King James and uh, probably a New King James and several others, it's got mystery, Babylon, and super cap letters, all capital letters. That's not in the original text. This is something the translators have taken upon themselves and it's caused a lot of confusion, I'm afraid. Her name is not mystery, Babylon. Mystery is the Greek word mysterion, and it is a noun. It's not an adjective, it's not an adverb. So the mystery is not modifying, it's not a title for the woman. It should read a mystery, because it's a noun. Now, I pulled in some of the heavyweights here. Uh to show you that it's not just me who has this opinion. R.C.H. Linsky, these are all great Bible commentators. Most of them have been gone to be with the Lord now. The word implies a new revelation, not something to be kept hidden. In this case, it is the exposing of what is evil about Babylon. E.W. Bullinger, subsequent revelation will show her to be a great city. We've already looked at that. But also a vast system of idolatry through the centuries that the great city represents. Joseph Seiss, he wrote one of the greatest commentaries on Revelation, turn of the century. 
The system had its beginning on the plains of Shinar, that's Babylon, through the work of Nimrod, we'll talk about him shortly, and will reach its pinnacle just there before the second advent. You have to remember, the title of this book is Revelation. It's the unveiling. So God's not introducing some secret here. This is, this is a, a, a revelation. John Walvert says that her name is Babylon the Great. It's not mystery Babylon. Whenever you see the uh, Babylon mentioned in the book of Revelation, she's called the Great City or Babylon the Great. Never is she called mystery Babylon, and that's important. And I, I stole my own thunder. But, uh, James, would you read these verses from Revelation? Revelation 14, 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen the great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Revelation sixteen nineteen, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Revelation eighteen two, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. John Walford, one of the founders there, Dallas Theological Seminary, you may have heard of it. He said, the woman's name is Babylon the great, not mystery Babylon. We're not, we don't have license to interpret Babylon any old way that we want to. And a lot of people do that based on this misunderstanding. Arthur Pink. Hey, I like that. I put a little uh, picture of him. Isn't he a good-looking fellow? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> I won't speak evil of the deceased. I don't agree with Pink on everything. I do agree with him on this, however. You want to read that, James? Off the board. This is Arthur Pink. A.W. Pink, you may have we heard believe, of oh, Excuse me. Go ahead. I'm sorry. We believe that the English translators have misled many by printing on their own authority, the word mystery in large capital letters, thus making it appear that this was part of the woman's name. This, we are assured, is a mistake, that the mystery is connected with the woman herself and not with her name is clear from Revelation 17:7, where the angel says unto John, I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast which carrieth her. Don't miss that. In Revelation 17, 7, the angel says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast. The woman and the beast. One more time. The woman and the beast. The mystery is about the woman and her relationship to the beast. It's not about her name. Okay, you, Have I beat that drum enough? You say, you've thoroughly beat that horse. All right, back to Revelation 17. We see that this woman, who is Babylon the Great, notice it doesn't say she's the daughter of harlots, does it? It says she's the mother. That means she's the progenitress. She's the originator. 
She is where it all started. A lot of people point to the Roman Catholic Church. And certainly there are a lot, there's a lot of Babylon in the Roman Catholic Church, no doubt. But she's not the mother. She's a daughter. She's a daughter of Harlot. Rome didn't come on the scene until far later. Go with me now to the mother of all harlotry in Genesis chapter 10. It's amazing how uh, Revelation and Genesis are the two bookends of history. There's a, there's a beautiful symmetry to it all. Genesis chapter 10. And James, if you will read <clears throat> verses 8 through 10. By yeah. the way, before he does, the NASB, I believe, renders Revelation 17 properly. On her forehead, a name was written, A Mystery, not capital letters there. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. So just, just wanted to get that in there. All right, Genesis 10. James, if you would read 8 through 10. And Cush begat Nimrod. He, be, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Okay. Let's talk about this. Cush <clears throat> uh, was the grandson of a famous guy. He built an ark. Noah. Noah's great-grandson is Nimrod. Nimrod's name means rebellion or to rebel. So do you see the importance of teaching your children about the Lord? Because you can go from several generations... From Noah to Nimrod. I could preach on that, but I won't. Nimrod is the sixth son of Cush. Interesting that he's the sixth. Um, Bible says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And uh, it's not a positive thing. It doesn't mean that he was a, uh, that he was a man's man. <laughs> How many of you guys like to hunt? Any of you guys like to hunt in here? I don't have the patience for it uh, or the eyesight, but uh, <laughs> hunting in that, in that context is not a negative thing. This is a negative thing here, okay? It's negative. He was a mighty hunter. Now, the King James says before the Lord. It can also be interpreted in Hebrew as against the Lord, and, and I'm going to show you that he was a rebel against God. Notice the beginning, it says, of his kingdom. This is the first mention of a kingdom in the Bible. Whenever something's mentioned for the first time, pay attention to it. The beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel. That is the same Hebrew word for Babylon. So when you see Babel, understand that's ancient Babylon. It's the same place. How do I know that? It's in the land of Shinar. You see that on the board? Go to, you don't have to go there, but in Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar, he captured the vessels of God from the temple, and he, he put them in the house of his God. You know where it was? It was in the land of Shinar. Shinar. So when you see Tower of Babel, I know it says Babel in your English translation, but it's the same Hebrew word as Babylon. So you go all the way back to the beginning of the kingdom, uh, the first kingdom in rebellion against God, and it's Babylon. Go with me to Genesis 11.
this picture on the, the wall here. This is exactly what the Tower of Babel looked like because I found it on Google Images. <laughs> so you know. No, uh, more than likely, the Tower of Babel was what they call a ziggurat, and it had several stages on it, and it was built to observe the, su the, su the sun and the stars and the moon. It was the, the, uh, the beginning of astrology and sorcery. Okay, a religious system. Uh, would you read that for me, James? Genesis uh, eleven four. They said, "Come, let us build for ourselves a city, and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name; otherwise, we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth." Okay, this whole thing is in rebellion. They want to build a name for themselves. They want to be like God. They want to be in the heavens. But notice their reasoning: lest we be scattered abroad. Upon the face of the whole earth. What had God told him to do? He had told him to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. In other words, to scatter out. And what did they do? They clumped together. It was the first uh, New World Order, you know, the first United Nation or whatever. They, they were, uh, uh, Nimrod founded this kingdom, but there was a religious aspect of it too. It was a religious system. I don't know if you can see this or not. I'm not seeing it all that great, so I may have to ease up here. <laughs> this is where the mother and child cult originated. You can do your own research. This is from Alexander Hislop. He wrote a book called The, uh, the Two Babylons. I don't agree with Hislop on everything. He believed the Babylon's the Catholic Church. So on that point, we disagree. Um, but... His research is accurate about the, the mother and son cult. Nimrod had a wife, and her name was Semiramis. Now, supposedly, Semiramis became pregnant by a sunbeam. She was, it was a virgin birth, and she had a son, and his name was Tammuz. Remember I told you to file that away? Okay. So the myth, the Babylonian religion, the origin of it is the mother-son cult, and it's Semiramis, who is the wife of Nimrod, had a miraculous, a virgin birth, if you will, conceived by a sunbeam. Tammuz grew up to be a teenager. He was gored by a wild beast, as the legend has it. For 40 days, Semiramis wept for Tammuz, and he miraculously came back to life, supposedly, according to the legend after the 40 days. Now, the Catholic Church co-opted that, and they've got Lent and Ishtar out of that, 40 days leading up to, uh, to that. But I'm, that's another discussion for another time. But here's what happened. You had the mother-son cult that, that originated in Babylon. You, you can do your own research on this. I'm not bringing this out of thin air. This is well documented. What happened when God confounded the languages at the Tower of Babel? He made them do what he wanted them to do to begin with, right? They spread out, amen? That's why we speak English and not Hebrew. Well, some of us speak it better than others, obviously, but, uh, and I was, I'm talking about myself being one who doesn't speak English well. But um, they spread out. Well, here's what happened. That Babylonian mythology of the mother, son, and cult is like a dandelion. You ever blow on a dandelion? And when you do, what happens? The seeds go everywhere. Right, So it went all over the world. So in Assyria, the mother's Ishtar 
and the child is Timotheus. It keeps, keeps the same name there. In Phoenicia, it's Astarte and Baal. Does he sound familiar? Have we read about him in the Bible? Yes. Egypt is Isis. The son is Horus. Greece, Aphrodite. The child is Eros. Rome is Venus. And the son is Cupid. Oh, there goes Valentine's Day. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin that for you. And on and on. But you get a, a Roman Catholicism. And you have a different version of Mary than the Bible teaches. You ever wondered why there's such a veneration of Mary in the Catholic Church? You ever wonder about that? They, even though Jesus had brothers and sisters, the Bible says, they insist on referring to her even now as the virgin, you know, and the queen, uh, the mother of God. You, you might hear that expression, Holy Mary, mother of God. You know where that came from? came from Semiramis, back at the Tower of Babel. And it's a, it's a Mary, it's, a, it's a not a biblical version of Mary and Jesus. The Catholic Church teaches that God paid most of the bill, but then you got to leave the tip. <laughs> but Jesus, when he died on that cross, he said, it's finished. I paid for it all, right? The Bible says that the, the Catholic Church says that you need all these mediators. You know, you need to pray to the saints. You got to pray to Mary. You got to confess your sins to a pope or whatever or a priest. But the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ, you know? So this thing eventually finds its way in Israel. You can read about that in Jeremiah 7. We did Wednesday night uh, and, and 44, where they're burning cakes to the queen of heaven, who is Semiramis. When you get to Revelation 18, the woman says, I'm a queen. I sit as a queen and no widow, but we'll get to that later. But anyway, that mythology found its way to Israel, God's chosen people. Have you ever wondered why Abraham was called in the first place? You know, right after God spread everybody out at the Tower of Babel, the next thing you read, there's a genealogy that takes us from Shem to Terah, who's Abraham's dad, and it says that God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. That's the land of Babylon, Mesopotamia, between the rivers. And God calls Abraham out of that, and he says, I will make of you a great nation. You read Genesis 10, and there's already 70 nations there. Why does God need another nation? I mean, good grief, don't we have enough? No, God wanted one nation that was not polluted with this garbage. And that's why Abram has a son in his old age from Sarah. Sarah's not a virgin, obviously, because there's only one virgin birth that's going to be the seed of the woman. Where would Satan get an idea to hatch such a sinister scheme like this? Where would Satan get the idea to start this? Go. You don't have to go there. Genesis 3.15, God says something to the devil, to the serpent. He says, the seed of the woman, interesting expression. You would think he would say the seed of the father, because that's how biology works, right? But the Bible says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. See? So Satan hears this. He knows there's going to be a miraculous conception and a resurrection. And what does he do? He's the master counterfeiter. He says, I'll come up with my own version of virgin birth, death, and rebirth. That's what the Yule log is all about at Christmas time. It's about the rebirth, you know, this, this idea of reincarnation. All isms, Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, whatever, Islam, it all has its origins back here. The mother of harlots, not the daughter, but the mother of harlots, and that's that, that is why the world is in the shape that it's in. Every other religion, folks, is about trying to reach God on your own. 
Remember the Tower of Babel? They said, we will build a tower. We will make a name for ourselves. We will be like God. That's what every other religion is about. But Christianity, the faith that we believe, is not about what we do for God. It's about what He did for us. And that's where we're closing here. All the other isms say, be the best you can be. Be a good person. Be devoted. Be this, be that. The Bible says believe. The Bible says believe. Islam, the moon god, Allah, he wants you to die for him. But Jehovah sent his son to die for you and me. That's the God we need to serve. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Is how it reads in the Greek. The most precious thing in all of heaven. The thing that is most near and dear to the heart of the Father. And God says, I will give him because I love these people so much. And I'll never understand that, especially when I look in the mirror, preacher. I'll never understand it. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus Christ, on that cross, took the punishment that rightfully should have fallen on every person in this room and every person that's listening to this message. God took in him, in his own son, and made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. The perfect one. And he was laid in that tomb, according to the scriptures, and on the third day, he rose again. And Jesus said he is alive forevermore. He is now at the right hand of the Father. And just as the apostles preach, I'm preaching you today, there is no salvation in any other name on earth or in heaven than the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No man, no system, no man comes to the Father but through me, by me. Would you stand? And I wanted to talk about all the ways Babylon has affected us. Listen, it's not just in the Catholic church. It's in Protestant church too, my friend. All of this name it, claim it, garbage, prosperity gospel, it came right out of the Babylon's playbook. We'll talk about that another time. Here's the crucial issue. Here's the crucial issue. Are you a citizen of the New Jerusalem or are you a citizen of Babylon? It's a tale of two cities, really. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, your destiny is the lake of fire. That's where you will go if you reject Jesus Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that if you will accept by faith. I think Ronnie asked, didn't you ask us earlier, he said, can anybody remember a time when you weren't saved, when you were lost? If you can't remember a time that you were lost, you're not saved. I'm not saying you've got to remember the day or the hour, exactly the moment, the minute. But if you can't point to a time where you said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and there was a change. Paul says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. He's not just a, 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 a band-aid of the old version. He's a new creation. All things have passed away, and behold, all things are made new. If you can never point to a time where you say, you know what, I've become new. I've been born again, as Jesus said. If you can never point to that time, today is your day. Today is your day. 
You don't have to join the church. You don't have to go jump through any hoops. You just by faith say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Make me a new creation. And if you're a believer, why don't you just thank God? Thank God that he got you out of that Babylon system and wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And one day, you and I are going to be a part of that city that comes down from heaven. Would you come? Thank you.